I'm fascinated by fear and I'll attach fear and risk. I think those two things kind of go together. We all have different risk propensity, different risk profiles, and those are related to the amount of fear that we feel. And I think there's a competitive advantage as an entrepreneur in how you manage that. The Strive for More podcast will resonate with those that strive for more in any aspect of their lives. Follow along on one man's journey on the path to a meaningful life through long form interviews with everyone from successful entrepreneurs, artists, physicians, leading scientists, social media influencers, and professional athletes. This episode of the Strive for More podcast is brought to you by the Strive Accelerator, which is a weekly mastermind group for entrepreneurs. So if you're not seeing the success you want, or you're searching for a community of like-minded business owners, then send an email to jared at striveaccelerator.ca to book a call and learn more. Our next guest is a big picture thinker, entrepreneur, business owner, and mentor. He brings an energetic perspective to both business and life while continuously pushing the boundaries of what is possible and disrupting conventional thinking. With a passion for people, he is constantly pushing others to achieve their goals and be their authentic selves. When he is not exploring or pursuing his next business venture, you can find him on the golf course, although usually in the rough, spending time with family, reading, snowboarding, or crushing pints and sharing stories with friends. He is currently the principal owner and president of four Calgary businesses, which provide an array of services to Western Canada's energy sector. Calgary is home and he is committed to this city in this province. He's also an active member of the Calgary chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization and the Alberta chapter of YPO. Please welcome our next guest, Jarvis Nickel. Jarvis, thank you so much for joining us and let's just get to it, buddy. Let's do it. You have, I know in the last 10 or 15 years, faced a lot of crises. There's been a lot going on in that period of time. And now you're hit with this next crisis, COVID. How do you deal with that? Well, we're going to start right with the right with the hard stuff. Um, it's a great question. I guess we're trying to figure out it every day. Uh, you know, I think that that one thing after working and having businesses in the energy sector for, like you say, over a decade now, we have been faced with some adversity and different levels of adversity. And I think that this is just another one of those problems in business. So, you know, part of what uh, my business partner and I have always tried to done is just simplify things down uh, into bite-sized pieces. Because I think if you take a step back and you watch the news or, or you know, you look at the pandemic and, and all the real, you know, you go down the rabbit hole, all the bad stuff out there, I think it can be very, very overwhelming and overpowering. But realistically, if you look at, you know, okay, what can I do today? What's the most important thing to deal with today? Uh, that's really helped us out. As well as we've got a bit of a crisis checklist that that, uh, we've been able to revert back to. Um, So we've kind of been through some steps that allow us to pivot pretty quickly in our business. We're fortunate about it. What is on that crisis checklist? Oh, so of course, a lot of it's just communication. Um, You know, we learned this. You know, back in two thousand and eight, when I got into business, there was the global financial crisis. what came out of that, some lessons that we learned on that, and, and I was a lot more immature then, was we lacked communication. So we, we, were, we were dealing with stuff behind the scenes and whether it was our banking partners, whether it was our vendors, whether it was our clients, whether it was our teammates and our employees, uh, people didn't know, necessarily know what was going on. I guess I could even extend that to my family and my spouse. Uh, 
So after coming through that, you know, our best success started to happen once you started to communicate and engage with people. So that's probably our biggest one is, is keeping the lines of communication open as to what we're doing and what we're thinking. Uh, it's slippery slope, of course, though, because if you, you tell people you're thinking of something, uh, speaking of employees, there is a tendency to think that that's already been enacted. Uh, or that that decision's been made. So we've learned some of those lessons as well as to how to share information effectively to let people know, you know what's on the table um, and where you stand as a health of a company. Because, you know, the anxiety of a business owner is no different than someone who's collecting a paycheck. Uh, and in some ways, it's, it's a lot less because at least I'm in control. So, you know, if we can have people that are worried or, or people that are focused on crisis management and putting the organization ahead of themselves, uh, you know, that can be positive versus someone who's in the dark and doesn't have an understanding of what's going on. They'll have a tendency to sit there and, and procrastinate or, or get stuck in thinking about how it impacts them. And then, you know, none of us are doing what we need to do. So that communications top of that list uh, has been a big one. And then we've got some really nice financials that we've been able to model out. So we kind of know where our key levers are in our group. Uh, and we pay close attention to those and, and, it's taken us years to really refine into what's the proactive levers in our business and how can we pull those. So, you know, a crisis like this, managing overhead, of course, is really easy to say that you're going to do it, but how fast can you act on it? Uh, and I know that we acted extremely fast uh, as soon as March hit um, to control some of that. And then we had, we had an understanding of what size our business needed to be to be able to support itself and sustain itself. So. We wouldn't, if this is the first time we'd really seen a crisis, we wouldn't have those metrics to really understand it. And we'd be learning as we go, I guess, because we've had some, some challenges in the past, we've, we've had that opportunity to navigate through and understand. How do you balance between communicating appropriately with employees, but at the same time, not worrying those people with information that might be too far in advance, but scare them? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, one that we've learned the hard way uh, as to what not to do. Uh, I think right now the, the advantage is to create a creative culture that allows for uh, relatability and it also is open and honest. So, you know, if people don't understand, we encourage them to come and engage with us, right? So, and, and we'll generally communicate more than once or twice, uh, especially on big ticket things. Uh, it's a quite large and quite impactful, we'll do several conversations on it, not just one where people have a tendency to squirrel away in their own minds. Uh, you know, we'll do a follow-up, either written follow-up, or we've been using Microsoft Streams and sending small video clips. We've also found in this pandemic has been very, very positive, especially when people working remotely. So you can still get authentic messaging out. That's new for us. But um, the other piece is really just trusting that, you know, Generally, humans are pretty smart uh, and they're, they're going to understand things. And, you know, we can't protect people. That's the other piece. You know, we've had to say some of that in this pandemic, more so than probably ever. Like, we have no idea what we're doing uh, and just know that, that we're being open and honest and no one really does. So, you know, but here's some of the things that we do know and we are doing those. So, you know, being effective in that. And, and just trusting in the process. And then again, we've spent a lot of time in the last decade, I think, on creating a culture of openness where you know, if you want to come talk to me or, or any of the senior management or whomever, like live for people to ask you questions. So, You mentioned that you have proactive levers to look at in your business from a key performance indicator standpoint. 
How did you come to determine what those levers are? Uh, time is helpful. I mean, there's there's definitely no shortage of tools. I go to KPI.com and there's you know, 7,500 different key performance indicators and a definition of them. Right? Finding how they fit into our business, trial and error, right? It took time to really understand it. I mean, we've been doing this for quite some time, uh, in my opinion. Like, what is it now? 2007, I basically got into business. So we're in our 14th year of business. So when we look at that, uh, you know, we've learned stuff through trial and error. I think that the big thing for us is not having KPIs that are reactive, right? Anybody gets an income statement, uh, monthly P&L, and you get a chance to look at it. And we're like, well, that's great. But that's already in the rearview mirror, and you're dealing with stuff day to day. So how can you get an understanding of, you know, how can you get booked business, in our case, booked business into our system where we actually understand how much work is ahead of us. And then when it falls off uh, due to things like a pandemic or uh you know, a, a negative commodity prices, for example, where, where work was literally being slashed in our industry, um, where we could understand what those impacts meant to us rather than waiting for the P&L to come out and realize, hey, we're at a negative you know, net income of X. So that, that's been a big piece is not just understanding the levers, but which ones are predictive going forward. The good news is a negative commodity price is just so crazy that that could never happen. It was it was so crazy when it happened. I think every, <laughs> all anybody could do was really laugh. Like I was like negative oil at twenty four bucks or eighteen bucks or whatever the heck it was. Unbelievable, especially in the middle of what else was going on. Like the world was coming to an end. It felt like. And those poor suckers that bought all those ETF contracts that had to go then pick up the oil. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But if you had some, if you had somewhere to put it, you know, put it somewhere, I guess. Hold on to it for a better day. It's in my bathtub right now. If you need three liters of oil, I'm your guy. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you. So over that period when you faced these crises, like I imagine the first time, you started 2007, you go through the financial crisis in 2008-9, like you're hardened in some ways. Do you still find that you are fearful going through a crisis like this? So 08, 08 wasn't bad because I was too naive to know any better, right? So we were, we were fortunate in 08, like we were able to navigate through it. We learned some stuff, of course, during that time, but it didn't impact our business like 2014 did. 2014 was detrimental um, to our business, uh, just how fast it hit. But, but we had some lessons learned from, from that 08. Uh, we were able to dust off some of that playbook and then... When we got through 2014, you know, we had some people around us, you know, primarily some of our banking and financial partners that, you know, given us pats on the back, but I never know what to take. You take it all with a grain of salt because, yeah, that was really clients. So, of course, you can kiss our ass. But, um, <laughs> and then when we did things in 2020 here, what was amazing to me is, of course, there's all these webinars and, you know, webinar business went through the roof where everybody put a webinar on it felt like on how to deal in crisis and attended a few and went through a few and I'm like this is all stuff we did like six weeks eight weeks ago um, and even our bank told us that they're like wow you guys really got ahead of this in a hurry and, and for Doug and I it didn't feel like it was so like it was biting off such a big arduous process it was just part of what had, had to happen okay this is going on here this is happening this is happening we got to do this this and this now and so you know, coming out of it now, I've got a, a sense of confidence 
that maybe I never had before. Because like, you know, we'll we'll survive this. Are we thriving? Goodness no. Uh, are we still facing risk? By all means, like I'm, we're not we're not positive. We're still in the red through this business um, and through this pandemic. Uh, barely, mind you. But going through this, yeah, I've got a lot more confidence that I did in that, especially 2008. And then 2014, you know, we kind of just held on and hoped for the best. Uh, and then coming through this, like, yeah, we've got some management skills here that are refined enough that I've got, I've got a little more confidence than I ever had in business in regards to that. And this too shall pass is the other piece, Jared, like the bumper stickers that, you know, I remember growing up, please God, let there be another oil boom. I promise not to piss it away. I come from a cattle background, which is a boom and bust cycle. Historically, every seven years, oil is a little bit more volatile, but the same thing. I mean, Alberta is hardened by booms and busts. Holy shit, it's raining money. It's like, oh my goodness, they're going to take my house. Uh, And I've lived through that as a kid on the ranch and and here. So I think it's almost unfortunately or fortunately become a little bit commonplace in my psyche. If you compare those management skills that you had in 2008 or 2014 to what you've just gone through now, how is that different? I think 14, 14, there was a lot more fear. You know, I'll skip eight because I was just so, so young at the time that I didn't know any better. So it was just cockiness more than anything we able to get through. Uh, I look at 14 and there was a lot more fear as to what was happening, right? Like I, I had to put money back into the company to keep it up. I thought I was going to lose my house. There's a bunch of stuff going on that, you know, and we'd done this massive growth cycle. We basically doubled every year in that 2013, 14 year, because essentially it was 15 that was really the crisis. Q, Q4 of 2014. So, you know, we'd had some big growth years where we'd, we'd done some significant investments in team and process and infrastructure to get to a certain place that matter eroded so quickly. Uh, that there was a significant amount of fear. Um, and I think because of getting through that fear, and I remember I was some sleepless nights, some anxiety and you know, long talks with my wife and navigating through uh, some really, really, I would say scary times for lack of a better, better word, um, that I didn't have this go around because you know, once you've been through it, I've always looked at something like I've been through this. You know, I, I now know what these feelings mean, how to navigate through them. So I think that helped a lot. The, the process for decision-making maybe didn't really change, but the underlying fear wasn't quite there. Am I still scared? Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not as scared as I was at the time because you know, I'm pretty confident that we'll, we'll figure this out regardless or I'll go and get a job you know, working for you doing podcast editing. <laughs> well, I don't know if you'd cut it. <laughs> a, is that a pun? <laughs> I'm very good at cutting it. It's really what this podcast is primarily about is pun-related jokes. Yes, that's good. Well, there, we got our first one, and let's see how many we can do. Start the ticker. (laughs) We'll start a drinking game. Yes, please. How do you stay resilient to fear? How do you manage that fear? Because I see you as somebody that is really mentally strong, that doesn't, from an outsider's perspective, get your feathers ruffled. So how do you... What kind of tactics or techniques do you personally use? Oh, this yeah, this could be a deep question. So I'll see how uh, the best navigate it. I think I'm fascinated by fear, and I'll attach fear and risk. I think those two things kind of go together. We all have different risk propensity, different risk profiles. 
And those are related to the amount of fear that we feel. And I think there's a competitive advantage as an entrepreneur uh, and a business person in how you manage that. Uh, and I thought about that, you know, since I had a business at 20, whatever it was, uh, to where I am now, the ability of my business partner, who's even has less fear than me, which I love a little bit more, uh, our ability to embrace the risk, our risk tolerance into that fear and then get comfortable in it quickly is a competitive advantage. So if fear bounces me around to the point where I'm not comfortable, if I can readjust my risk and get comfortable with it, then I'm lined up and I can go forward. If I, if I have a hard time balancing that risk tolerance against the fear and I can't find the balance, then I find that I spiral out of control. The older I get, I now have a better understanding you know, of how the ego works in us and how that lizard brain that is about fight or flight um, how it's, you know, it's served us 10,000 years ago, but I'm not so sure it's serving me today, but it's still the same hormones are being released and all the same stuff's happening. We get this fight or flight. It's how we manage that. Uh, and so I do a lot of reading on it. I think, you know, mental health, self-help or health is really important. So exercise, sleep, hydration, uh, eat good food. You know, all those things all help me manage that relationship between fear and then my risk tolerance. And when I've lined those things up and get comfortable with them, then I can go forward and make decisions that aren't about fear. They're about managing risk. You spoke about your ability to manage these external things, the exercise, the nutrition, the meditation, all of that sort of stuff. And I know that you're somebody that has a really tremendous morning routine. So maybe you can speak to that morning routine. Yeah, and I'm not taking credit for it because it's definitely not mine, but there's a gentleman I'm by the name of Warren Runstad. Uh, he's a really smart guy. He talks about the corporate athlete, and I've heard him speak a few times. He's, he's part of this uh, organization called Entrepreneurs Organization, EO, Global Entrepreneurs Organization, and it's a big part of it. Anyway, he's, uh, he speaks to, to that corporate athlete piece. Like, if, if you want to be the best business owner you can, you should probably try to take care of yourself no different than the best hockey player or the best interpretive dancer in your case, Jared, or whomever you're going to be. <laughs> if, that's, if that's what you're going to go do, how can you do your best if you're not taking care of your, of your body? So thinking of yourself as a corporate athlete is no different. So if I'm partying all night or if I'm staying up and gaming or whatever the hell people do and I'm you know, you're just not taking care of yourself. You put a lot of sugar or processed, you know, carbs or whatever the hell it is in your body. How can you be at your best? Uh, and that message that he talked about, he's a man I admire and respect. And so we just, you know, I've taken some of the things that he's done. Um, for me, the morning is the only time I get to myself. Not so much anymore. My kids are older, but um, when they were young and the business was very consuming, uh, and then I try to be a good dad. When I come home, there's no time, and so you know, you just didn't feel well, or I didn't feel well. Sorry. Um, and I always thought of myself, well, I'm a night owl, you know, all the stories we tell ourselves. And then someone told me, well, what if you weren't? And I just thought, well, what if I'm not? So I started getting up early because it's the only time that's mine. So, and I still do it. So most days, 5.05, uh, I get up. I don't know why 5.05, but I just like the sound of it. I got <laughs> two hours, two hours to myself. So generally between five and seven are my time. And I cram a lot of self-help uh, into those periods. And and then I go forward the rest of my days pretty free to you know, do whatever dumb stuff that I want to do because I know that I'm already above the curve. So, uh, 
uh, I don't have to beat myself up if I you know, fall off the wagon or do something else during that day. So for me, it's worked very, very well. What do you do in those two hours? What is that like out of those two hours, what time is dedicated to particular activities? Yeah, so it's relatively the same. Uh, I used to be really regimented with it, but what ended up happening is I, I ended up beating myself up because I, you know, I just felt a lot of pressure to do it at, at a certain point in my life. So now I, I try to tick the same boxes, but I really don't care how long they are. So uh, I generally will wake up and I drink water, two big glasses of water, always start the day. I make a caffeinated coffee um, and then I will generally read. So I'll read anywhere from five minutes uh, to some days if I'm not feeling well, I'll read for almost the whole two hours. Um, and I always read, I used to try to read, you know, self-help books and get better and like the Jared Henry autobiography of business and stuff at night and I wouldn't retain any of that. Um, so now I do all that reading in the morning, I find that my brain's really, really open uh, and, and it just sucks information and my ability to retain uh, is way, way higher in the morning. So always read generally, you know, that 15 minutes um, and then I'll journal. So I just started journaling, I don't know, a few years ago and it's been pretty great. Uh, but the, the great part I like about this journal is write it relatively optimistic um, and I'll give those to my kids at some point in my life. So there's lots of like one page. I don't, I don't like to journal for a ton, but the, the quickest way to connect the heart and the head is through the hands. Uh, so we're all on our computers and all doing this stuff. So the ability to write written word uh, with pen and paper, there's still something romantic to it that I think is great. Um, so I find journaling just real quick. Uh, so usually I'll read something and then I'll journal something pops into my head and I'll write about that or I'll write about what's important. Or, you know, for example, tomorrow's my daughter's birthday. So I wrote about her this morning and just how great it is you know, to have her in my life and some of the lessons she's taught me. So I'll go through that. Uh, and then I meditate, which I don't always do because I find it super duper hard, but everything I read tells me that I should. So I'm really pushing myself to do it. So I usually meditate 10 minutes uh, and then I work out workouts, usually cardio based and weights and anywhere from a half hour to an hour and a half again, depending on that day. And that takes me like two hours and come upstairs and usually my family's up and I start my day from there. So it works. It's worked out fairly well for me. I'm, I'm doing that at least five days a week, uh, if not seven, uh, but I'll do it on the weekends too, generally, as long as I'm not out too late, because it's still important trying to get my seven hours of sleep. You mentioned that you journal the really positive stuff. Is, do you think there's a negative to that? Do you think, do you have an outlet to process some of the, challenges that you face either in business or in life yeah it's a good point at one point i only tried to journal positive optimistic comments and stuff and then i was really struggling with it and i talked to uh to a mentor of mine about it and he's like well why can't you write about negative things positively so hmm. i i i have an outlet to talk about so I, I could write about fear i could write about anxiety i could write about you know challenges with my business partner challenges with my wife whatever my insecurities are that might pop up that day, I could write about any of that stuff and I could still find a positive way to look at it. And those can be simple things like, wow, what a great experience it is to sit here and get this on paper. So I always try to leave it in a positive way so that stuff isn't clinging to me and dragging me down, but uh, you know, let it know that I'm still in control. Not control is not the right word, but you know, I'm still empowered uh, to have my life in my own hands and 
I think that's really powerful. And I've noticed in my own life, of course, the human brain is wired to see things in a negative perspective, because just like you said, it's a fight or flight. We're wired to be reptiles and we don't want to die. So we see things in a negative light. And I found I'm wired just like that, just like everybody is, I think, but maybe to a, a greater extent. And so one thing I've been doing is just like what you're saying is I've been viewing any negative situation uh, as a as an opportunity. So if something, let's say my car gets hit, you know, that rear-ended or something, and I've been engaging in the practice of saying, thank you. And I think that that just trains your brain, just like you're saying, to see positives even in difficult situations. Yeah, and it, it links to, you know, I didn't really talk about it in crisis management. The other, so I'll jump around here because I'm in agreement and I show you how it relates to business. So you talked about the checklist. What's on the checklist? The other piece that we put on the checklist is try to be the most optimistic people in our space. And that's always been very, very positive, whether we're talking to the bank, whether we're talking to clients, whether we're collecting receivables, whether we're, you know, we're dealing with employees who are scared or even, God forbid, we have to do some layoffs if you've had to do. Try to stay positive inside of that. Uh, try to be a little bit of a beacon or a lighthouse uh, in that storm. And it has worked very, very well uh, for us as organizationally, both from a culture standpoint, but I also think from uh, gaining market share. Uh, and just building our brand in crisis. I think anybody can sell, you know, $120 oil. A monkey could uh, could make money in that environment. It's completely different to 20 or 30 barrel dollar oil when the competition's still there. But who wants to go in and, and listen to EOR talk, right? You know, and, and we've had, or I've had, because I do a lot of business development in that space, you know, had to listen to clients. But at the end, like, okay, are you done feeling sorry for yourself? Because <laughs> now it's time. Like all that stuff's true, but now we've got to, you know, what can we do to find the good in this? What can we do to be instruments of change in this process? And that's, I've had a lot of, of feedback, even in this uh, pandemic of either teammates or clients or just neighbors, friends, whatever, who have said, wow, it was really uplifting to have that conversation with you today. And to be honest, Jared, I probably wouldn't be able to, to give in that light without doing some of that positive journaling and creating that mindset early in the day. Like, wow, what a great, how lucky am I to be alive? Man, I'm not in Syria. Like, <laughs> you know, or whatever, whatever the hell it might be, right? Like I'm a middle-aged guy born into the, one of the safest, wealthiest countries in the world. Uh, I hit the genetic and geographical jackpot. Like, we're blessed or I was blessed to be given this opportunity so that least I can do is try to pass it on the positive way as much as I can. And I feel like I'm all preachy and talking like holier than now. And if my wife was here, she'd come back and say, well, you're not always positive, which is true. I'm not, but that journaling has been a big piece that's helped me, uh, you know, create that intention. The surprise is that the second part of this episode actually consists of your wife refuting some of the things that you've said here. I'd love that. She would too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You, you spoke about this transition in 2007 from employee to entrepreneurship. Do you remember looking back at that decision? Do you remember that being an easy decision to make or was that something that was really difficult for you? I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always knew I did. Um, I wasn't a great employee. It was always a bit challenging, a bit headstrong. Uh, I didn't continue improvement. was a big portion of when I worked for other people. Um, and so, you know, God gave me an opportunity to go do this. 
so it wasn't really a choice. You know, my, our story was I wasn't even looking to start a business. Our, I was working for a company and their largest client phoned me on Friday and said, be in my office on Monday. I showed up on Monday and they had a blank master service agreement. Said, go incorporate a company. We're firing your employer. You're going to start our work. So that's how I became an entrepreneur. Doug and I went and started a business and that's how simple it was for us. We you know, blessed are the true entrepreneurs to grow and mortgage their houses and do all these amazing things. Like I got so much admiration for people that do that and, and spend years refining what they want to do. Like it's, it's so special to, to hear those stories and to see the perseverance that people put into things. You know, I'm very fortunate. I just, I was handed what I always asked for. Why you? Why not? <laughs> but why did they choose you? Well, I think because if, you know, golden rule, treat other people the way you want to be treated. I think that helps. You know, I'm relatively competent in my job, I think. Whether I was the best or not, I don't know, but relatively competent. And I had a propensity for, uh, for bigger picture thinking and strategy. And I think that just aligned. Um, but it's a good question, you know, and it's one that I've never really asked. I, I, I choke it up to just kind of timing and the situation. But you know, someone else gave me an advice in this pandemic that that why not me? That why not me is a great, a great lesson uh, just to look at. Might as well be me. And so whoever is listening, if you even have any listeners to her, is uh, I actually don't think I do. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Well, we're just recording this for, for the ages, I guess. So you're really just here to help me on my own path, Jarvis. <laughs> I hope not. If that's the case, that's awesome too, man. Because, you know, but, but that piece of like, why not? I, I don't really know. I think a big piece is I wanted it bad enough. And I also had the skill set. So it made sense. Like when that, when I, we were offered that situation, I don't think anybody in that room between me and that client at the time didn't know, didn't think that I had the skills to get through it. Even at the time, I was like, okay, I know what to do. We'll go do this, this, and this. By Friday, we were up and incorporated and running. Did we make some mistakes in that? Goodness, yes. But that's the only way I've ever learned anything is by screwing up a few times. So. How do you learn from those screw-ups? Because it's great to say, I learned from failure. I think most people that actually learn from failure have some kind of system. What is yours? Do you have one? Yeah. Yeah. The major ones, of course, like the, the big screw-ups is, again, I, I won't use the word journaling because that's not it, but but it is essentially a sitting down for me and writing. And I don't do it a lot, but when you make some big mistakes, uh, which I've had, I've, we've had a bit of a tough run here in one side of our business. Um, and it, it completely falls to me and some, some poor choices or decisions that I made at the time. And so I did an actual uh, post-mortem on them and looked back. And, and then I shared that with Doug too, just verbally. I don't even know if he cared. He didn't ask me to do it, but I was like, hey, this is... This is what happened. This is why I made the decisions I did. Here's where the mistakes were made. Here's my major lessons and takeaways from it. So for me, just purposefully doing doing that look back and recording a few things, I'll never look at those notes again. I'm not that guy, but just writing them down, I think, again, connected head to heart, gets connected through your hands. And it's a, it's a positive tool for me to do that. So, And then just purposefully taking a step back to like, also wallow in the self-pity and the shame and the guilt and the <laughs> mistakes and then letting it go and finding the positive and the optimism coming through it. Okay. Well, that was really shitty, but I learned this. So man, what a gift I got that I got to learn that now. And you know, no one died and away we go. So that's, uh, that's been a piece. It also gets older, easier as you get older too, because 
just accepted a lot more of them versus when I was in my twenties. Thought I knew everything. Do you find that just recognizing that shame actually helps you get rid of that feeling? It's been the biggest change in my personal life in probably the last two years is to acknowledge it and let it go. Because I would hold on to stuff a lot longer and that would continue to beat me up and it would rear its ugly head at inappropriate times or when you're trying to make decisions, it comes up in not a, not a helping way, but like, hey, Jarvis, don't screw this up again. Uh, so, you know, now just going through the process and turning it into that positive spin and learning that lesson, there's not as much resentment towards me or even other people when other people make the mistakes I know that you've got so much going on, Jarvis. You've got a number of companies. You've got, you know, on the order of 150 employees. How do you balance the size of that business with the time demand? So what are some of the systems maybe that you have put in place that you think really help you limit that burnout or that workload on you as an entrepreneur? Probably the biggest tool is loving life. You know, my, and I don't, I didn't say the word understanding. I said loving because often my wife doesn't understand. She lets me know that because she loves me and wants to take care of me. Uh, and a lot of the times where I tell her that I didn't understand, she would rebuttal with, you're right, I don't, but I'm watching this and this and this go on unless someone who loves you. So that, that's probably my biggest tool is I do have a, a sounding board for some of that stuff that I'm you know, or, or someone to hold up a mirror uh, and reflect um, and give me conversations on what's really important. Uh, and then the other part that's you know, probably the biggest reason why I'm an entrepreneur is because I want to be in control of my own life. There, there's this westernized idea of like the badge of honor about how many hours you worked. And I used to wear that badge so proud. Hmm. Right? Like, I get 150 emails a day and I worked 18 hours yesterday and that and all this stuff that I thought made me, made me a great businessman. Well, I had a, a good friend of mine who owns a business in Calgary and he basically, he did the opposite to me. He's like, Oh, that's crazy, man. I worked three hours yesterday. <laughs> that's a fucking amazing. Um, and, and, and and then in doing it, I was like, well, how do you do that? And he's like, well, you're the boss. You do whatever you want. And, you know, a little bit of a light bulb moment went off. And I started to like, well, how do I want to live my life? You know, how do you balance margin against, against uh, or net income? How do you balance net income against time? You can do that. Right? Do you want to make X dividend or are you happy to go with no dividend and be home at five? Right? Those two things can be done at certain stages. When our business is starting up in a major growth mode, we didn't have processes and procedures and you know, I was doing invoices and rocking my kid in his, in his crib at two o'clock in the morning. I remember those days, you know, though now we're a big enough, mature enough business that, you know, it's mid-sized company. We build structure in place, but I'm in control of my day uh, and I'm the only one that is. So are there days like today that's been a little bit hectic on me? For sure. It's not a normal day though. Today, other people took my schedule away from me, and that's okay because there are actually fires to put out. Most of the time, I do exactly what I want to do in my business, and I'm blessed to do it. But that was done not by luck. That was done by purposeful understanding of what I wanted and then going as well as what I was good at and what I wasn't because that's important. If you if you want to live a certain way, but you don't have the skill set to do it, which I've run into as well, there's no point in trying that. So. You know, getting true with what you're actually good at um, and then doing some elevate, delegate towards the people around you. Um, and then, yeah, really, how do you want to live your life? And I've been blessed to be able to move towards that. 
What are the things in your business that you're really passionate about? I'm passionate about people. And I'm passionate about passionate about helping people move forward. You know, as I look back and in a decade plus of work and the moments that stick out are like when someone told me that they didn't know how to set goals and we helped them set goals and then they went and achieved them and seeing, you know, how proud or happy they were. And, you know, those were small things because I've been blessed to be able to read and, you know, to get mentorship and to do a bunch of things that lots of people can't do or, or haven't had the chance to. So if I can share some of those small tools with people um, and then see the ones that actually grab it and want to do it, because lots of people say they want to improve or change and then, experiences definitely not 100% of people do uh, but to see the ones that do and then watch them go do it and flourish and like I, I love that part of a business um, the other one I really like strategy and I like to try to understand you know what drives decision making both from a teammate or employee standpoint and then as well as from from vendors or, or when we look at our clients you know, so this changing world that we're in, this digital world, like it's just fascinating to me to think about like, well, how are we delivering information and why? Is there a way to change that? Like I have passion about those ends of the business. So spend a lot of time in the culture side, uh, culture and the mentorship. And then and then on the strategy and also in some of the communication piece, I'm just not a great writer, but it's, uh, I do like to set some vision on how to communicate with people and have some fun with it. Whether or not it always hits, I mean, likely not, but I'm passionate about it. And, uh, and I really enjoy, you know, I get out of bed in the morning for those two things. Knowing you, it likely doesn't always hit. No, it doesn't. Yeah, I can guarantee <laughs> I can guarantee There's many times where you fall on your face in that and you're like, well, that wasn't well received. So Now I know how comedians feel, trying out new material and nothing. Yeah, you know, and I've often thought that I should try that at some stage in my life. Like, I don't think of myself as overly funny, but I was like, I think it'd be fun to try to put something together and go and just have to deal with trying to make people laugh for a living. Well, I'll join you. Yeah, man. Let's also, do it. Not, not funny, but yeah, that would be quite a challenge. Amateur hour. That's what I'm going to call my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's actually in the description of this one. Is it? Right. Oh, yeah. Amateur hour. Well, I'm trademarked, so you owe me that. Shit. <laughs> yes. You mentioned strategy. And I think that that's a good segue into this idea around buying businesses. And I know that that's something that you've explored and, and dabbled in, of course, yourself. And so I want to know, we all have, I think, opinions. We've got ideas and beliefs on where the world is going whether that's an improvement in tech or artificial intelligence or the commodity cycle or whatever that is, we've got this opinion. We've done reading and we've formed some type of opinion. So how do you, who has these opinions on where the world is going, how do you then turn that into buying a business? How do you say, I think the world is going towards this future and I want to buy this business to help me actualize that future. It's a good point. I may clarify the last sentence because I'm not sure I'm buying business to, to do that. I think there's a challenge when we, when we think of entrepreneurs or when people think of entrepreneurs or startups or whatever. There's all these like, we all have to have these sexy businesses. You know, I gotta, how am I going to think of the next skip the dishes? 
or Amazon or like, oh yeah, the world needs those things. Well, that's wonderful. But you know what else the world needs? Granite countertops. So is there a business out there that's making money and breaking even that just doesn't, hasn't really optimized what they already have? And some of the systems that they have are antiquated and they, you know, they just don't have some of these pieces to move them forward and, and taking a business that's running inefficiently, but still positive uh, to me is just as much of an advantage as finding you know, the next greatest thing. You got to balance that off with no one wants to buy Blockbuster the year before Blockbuster goes, goes out. And so, but but I, I was talking to someone and they were like, well, how do you like being a disruptor? I'm like, well, I'm not trying to be a disruptor. I actually don't want to. I just want to optimize some businesses, create a good life and scale them. Because that's the simplest business model is, you know, in scale, we can manage margin, take care of your, your costing and pricing. And you can deal with a lot to gain market share. And, you know, can that be done on a business that we know is not going to go away? Because there's, I don't care how digital we get. People still need countertops, for example, right? Or construction materials or some type of manufacturing. There's certain things that may go away in the long term, but I'm not necessarily sure they're going to disappear tomorrow. So when we look at the M&A process, which is basically about 50% of my week right now, we're actively prospecting businesses. So anybody who's listening, if you know anyone who's looking at active business, you know, there's my shameless plug, but... You know, the Cardon group is looking because we've done this in the past and it's, it's worked well for both parties, both the exiting party. And then we've been able to find businesses that fit in well with us and been able to scale them. So as we look at businesses, we're not, we're not doing big fancy SWOT analysis at the entire global market and trying to understand what's going on. Because, you know, would anybody have said you should really buy a mountain bike store? No, but if you did, you'd be pretty happy this year, Because right? it's all a shitload of online. So, you know, you know, all these things can hit you and can come up and can get you. But there's, there's some businesses that are, when you get a chance to look at them, you're like, this, this company likely isn't going to go anywhere because what is the, what's the risk to globalization and shipping? I think that there is a big portion of that. You know, yes. businesses now, you don't have to buy your shingles from Calgary, you can probably buy them direct from China now. Or in a few years, you probably will be able to. So there's all these middle wholesale type companies that I think as the logistics network globally gets better, you know, that stuff I think is going to be a little bit harder. So I'm careful on some of those is where can the other, where can competition come from? Um, so we look at businesses where you still need people uh, and you need local people. Uh, so those are the types of businesses that we look at. Not trying to reinvent the wheel and be the smartest Jeff Bezos out there. When you think about investing in a business, and I don't want to say turning it around, but improving the profitability of it, what do you think your secret sauce is that you bring to that mix? Oh, I think some of it's just marketing and and business promotion and around sales. You know, I I'm a sales guy. That's my background is sales. I love sales. I love meeting people. I love talking to them and. You know, there's a lot of businesses that don't have really any sales process. They may have a salesperson, but there's really no process to it. It's not purposeful sales. Or maybe they're just doing relationship management. And they're only managing their existing clients, existing relationships. They're really not buying any new stuff. So 
generally we'll look at businesses from that angle through the sales lens, right? If they come in and it's a, it's a well-functioning sales team that's using some type of CRM tool and it's producing, you know, weekly, monthly, quarterly sales analytics, it's probably not a business that we're going to spend too much time looking at. Um, yeah, I say that flippantly depending on where it's at, but those are the businesses that we look at and our success historically has come with like, Hey, I've had the same six clients for the last however many years and they're starting to tail off because now my relationships are moving on or retiring out or there's been mergers and acquisitions in their businesses if it's B2B and they're not selling. You know, so we look through that lens and say, what can, you know, what is a $300,000 investment in a sales force or some type of system in the sales market? What kind of return can that get? Especially if they're, if they're underutilized in either the machinery or the people. If it's manufacturing, it's hard to buy another piece of machinery or that cost may be significantly higher than what you could do on the sales side, especially if that machine isn't running. So the easiest way is to buy that machine and then get it utilized 80, 100%. All gravy at that point. So those are kind of companies that we look at and I think that's some of our secret sauce. The other is culture, but I have to be careful with that because there's certain cultures that you know we have looked at where we just didn't think it was going to work for us. Because you know we've got core values that are, are built around Doug and I, and we're pretty pretty important to us. And and if we uh, if we're going into into a culture where the key people have values that maybe don't line up in the same light, it's it's going to be painful for all of us. Um, so we'll generally avoid those. But if we find cultures where we do line up, we think we can really uh, really build off of those. What are some of those core values? What matters to you in business? Yeah, I mean, so we have a few and we've attached the kind of names to them. So fun is a core value of Doug and I's. And the biggest reason is, you know, nobody really wants to work, let's be honest, especially employees. So the last thing you want to do is have people come to work and not like their job. So we think the best way to do that is to not take ourselves too serious. So we try to create culture where you can do that. And that, that leads to approachability. It leads to open communication, I think. So fun's a really big one for us. doesn't mean you have to be hard partying or telling appropriate jokes, right? It's, it's more <laughs> about that, that piece of if you can laugh at yourself, you can be a little self-deprecating, not take yourself too serious. Well, we always say around our place, like, if you can't make fun of me, who can you make fun of, right? So it's, I'm, I'm fair game in that business. And it's I think an that, easy target. It is super easy, and that's why I had to get used to it because it's been happening for so long. <laughs> um, but if you can't do that, then or, or it's important that we've been able to do that because that's created an openness in the communication. I feel we've had lots of feedback for that. Most important core value that we have, uh, in my opinion, is accountability. Um, and for accountability, is when you make a mistake, you own it. Uh, that's really really important. I can I can work with people all day every day if they can own their mistakes but as soon as people start pointing fingers or as soon as people can't realize that they're not perfect uh, and want to improve that doesn't work well for us so i'll go to war with anybody that i know i can trust to you know to be open and honest and realize that they're human and not perfect so that's that's my biggest one and out of the five we have we really refined around that uh, from our hiring process is to really try to ask questions about when people have been accountable at the workplace and what that means to them how successful do you think you are at hiring good people personally yeah well we have core values jerry because we were terrible at it uh, so years 2011 we were hiring and like crazy uh, 
but the turnover was immense and it was painful. It was really hard. Uh, and it was funny. We realized that like there were some people like as soon as they were in the door, I knew they were going to be with us for a while. And there's other people I knew you know, based on my first conversation. I'm not involved in the hiring because they don't let me because I love everybody. So, and I generally <laughs> talk through the entire interview about myself and then hire them at the end. So, so I haven't done hiring for a long time in our organization. But we, we went through this, this stage in where we had high turnover. Uh, and then we worked with a occupational therapist who helped us in some core values. And he's like, well, we can hire core values. And that. And so we identified the first four and we started to do hires based on that. Did they hit all the time? No. I mean, it's, it's challenging sometimes with our core values to hire into some roles. You know, in this market right now, we hire, we retain, we bonus promote based on core values and we also set people free if they don't align with core values. It's got a lot better and kudos to the people that, that do this role in our organization because they're very good at it in my opinion and that we hit it every time. But compared to where we were in 2011, I couldn't be prouder of the people we have to bring up. I've heard you say a really neat phrase before. You've said can't versus won't. Can you explain that? We're in control of ourselves, right? And that's that speaks back to where we were with fear, right? And that the piece of fear is is that the difference in the can't and the won't. So if I say if I say I can't say something, I'm basically just too scared to say that I won't, because right? you can do anything, essentially. I mean, outside of a couple of things, like I can't go set foot on the moon, but. You know, if I ask you, hey, Jared, can you come to my house tonight for a scotch and a cigar? And you say, hey, but I can't. Well, what you're really saying is I won't because I've got other priorities that are more advantageous or better for me or whatever. And the word can't. I'll be there in 15 minutes. Yeah, that a boy. So the, the word, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with the word can't. And I, I don't begrudge people that say it. I've just been you know, diving into it more when I say it and understand what the won't is. Um, because there is generally a won't when I say, hey, I can't do this. There's something in there that's actually saying I won't do it. So I'm making an actual choice as to why. Uh, and understanding what those choices are really helped me identify where some of my fears are. And then again, that relationship between fear and risk management in it uh, can help out. So I don't know if that answered your question exactly where you're going for. But for me, that's a big piece is there is there's a conscious decision when you say the word can't and it comes from somewhere and understanding why you won't or the won't in that can't statement uh, can just be eye-opening. I think that that sentence has been so powerful for me. And now whenever I'm saying I can't do something, I'm right away, the first thought that pops into my mind is to say, I won't do that. And then exactly like you're saying, then dig into, well, why won't I do that? Am I scared? Do I have better priorities? Is there you know, something else going on. And I think that process really reveals kind of your genuine motives behind things. And so it's been really powerful to me to, as someone who can't a lot. Well, and then you get that, you get those points. You're like, okay, well, I actually did it because of this reason. And then when you actually look at that reason out loud, it loses some power sometimes, or, you know, it becomes smaller or marginalized and it really doesn't become an obstacle. You're like, Oh really? That was what was holding me back. Well, as I really look at that, you know, I could solve that problem in two weeks. So now I'm going to have to do it. Now I've got a new reason why I can't do something, right? So 
they can be very powerful to, to navigate through, uh, especially there's a lot of cancer right now, I think. What do you think is holding you back from higher levels of success and not necessarily in the business, but more broadly in your life and relationships, it could be in business, but what's holding you back from higher levels of success or achievement or contentment? A great question. I think we can all ask ourselves that. For me personally, it's the definition of success, right? To be quite honest, um, my mantra here the last two weeks has been the word enough. Uh, so can you find success in enough? Uh, and that doesn't mean you can't go and do other stuff, but if, if you're running, if you can never be successful because you don't have enough, then you're never going to be successful. So. I'm trying to understand, well, maybe this is enough. And if, if this is all I had, then that's amazing. Uh, and get comfortable in that space before I think I go on to something new rather than just running blindly towards, you know, success and success being the easiest measurement of success is money or currency just because it is. Uh, you know, it's harder to measure other things. Currency, you just take a look at your bank account. It's quantitative and it's quite easy, right? So... So those are very, you know, empty, empty measurements of success. So nobody really wants to do that. Or I personally, I should say, I personally don't really want to do that. So to run towards success, first, I, I want to get comfortable with what's enough. And I think once I do that, then I'll be more apt to understand what actually is success. Right? And, and then again, Jen and I got some stuff that we're talking about the next stage in our life as our kids are getting older. And I look at, you know, a decade from now, I want to have kids in my house and I'll be 50. You know, what does that mean for me? Uh, and it'll probably be a different measurement of success. So right now it's trying to find balance. Uh, uh, I think that there's some, some piece right now for me that's just really, really about enough. From articulating it well, but it is, it is that that spot where I think I want to get grounded to where I'm at, and then have a better understanding of what success means for me as I go forward, uh, and then go forward to that. As you're talking about that intersection between success and enough, I wonder where you find meaning in your life now. Where are those moments for you? Well, you know, like COVID. As much of a pain in the ass as it's been, there's been these gifts of time. And as I talk to a lot of people from many facets of life, even today when I did some rounds around the office, the gift of time has been cherished by many of us. Uh, myself, for sure. And I think the opportunity to, to not have distraction, like... To not have a commute, to not have my kids' sports I was running to, to not have to pick up dry cleaning. Man. I would, you know, the poor dry cleaner down the street, but, you know, <laughs> that was something I used to do every two weeks. Yeah, it's not a lot of time. That's half an hour or two weeks that I gained back, right? So by not being consumed by these little things, all of a sudden it's given these time, or given me time to notice those things a lot more. Uh, and I believe that that society, or I'm hoping that society is going to be able to retain some of this as we go forward and we run ahead, that those are really good times where I could just sit back and notice my kids laugh or my kids sit down and play a game of cards together and get along for a change or whatever the hell it is. You know, or the, the quiet time of going outside and the sprinklers kick on and the irrigation, like, oh, that's cool. Right in the past, I probably wouldn't even notice, but I remember taking a look back and being like, wow, that's really cool. And 
know, we live in a society where this happens. Something I would have never thought of and something that's maybe kind of silly, but I'm finding just in time, the brain has a lot more space or my brain's got a little more space to, to understand some of that stuff. And that's been pretty cool. I love that. Is there anything that you wish that I had asked you or is there any message that you want to leave on? Yeah, I didn't, uh, you know, like most things in my life, I'm not the most prepared guy. So I, I didn't, I just figured we'd organically navigate through this. Um, you as always, <laughs> you as always did a fantastic job. Uh, I nailed it. You did, man. You always, from the first day I met you, all you did do it was achieving. Um, I don't, I don't have any, I mean, give yourself a break. That's a big thing. Just, life's hard. It just is. And and then the other pieces read, you know, everyone should be reading. Just, there's just so much out there and I find it harder and harder to read now that you got Instagram or God forbid you got TikTok or Snapface or whatever the kids are on nowadays. But, um, you know, to, to find peace and quiet in books and retain knowledge that way, I think is great. And, you know, the other thing, mental health is really, really important to me. I think people go to the gym all the time, you know, to work on their physical health. Uh, what do we do for emotional health? Uh, I'm a big proponent. I've seen a psychologist for years and years. It's something that's taboo with a lot of people and they're embarrassed about it. I'm not. It's like my favorite. I go every two weeks you know, through COVID and have a chat. Got a lady that uh, helps me navigate through some stuff. And, you know, I encourage people to do that if you're struggling with it. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's a shot at someone's masculinity or someone's mental competence if you do i respect that opinion too for me it's been instrumental in having an outlet to deal with stuff so it's uh it's a message i know a lot of people have a lot of shame around asking for help and needing it so i think you know, guys like me that don't uh should speak up so that's why i would leave you guys with that message if you need help go get it well on that note jarvis i want to thank you so deeply for taking the time today to sit down with us uh you are somebody that literally from the moment that I met you, I knew was a special person and somebody that I really admire. And I'm grateful that you sat down and I'm grateful for our broader relationship. So thank you for joining us. And for the listeners out there, if you want to learn more about Jarvis, you can find him personally on LinkedIn at Jarvis Nickel. That's N-I-C-O-L-L. You can find the Cardon Group at cardongroup.ca. Jarvis, my friend, it has been a pleasure. Thanks, Jerry. I really appreciate it, man, your beauty. And uh, I'll let Jenny know that she gets to partake in episode two, which is the rebuttal. Happening right now. <laughs> okay, thanks, guys.